All right, we're continuing in the letter of James. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to James chapter 3. And uh, you might see a little header next to the beginning of chapter 3, depending on your your Bible, that says taming the tongue. And so this is a very well-known section of James where he says, where he talks a lot about the power of speech, uh, particularly for evil, for negative purposes. And he talks about taming the tongue, but I've titled the sermon Training the Tongue, because instead of talking about taming the tongue, I want to talk about ways in which we can train our tongue to speak good and gracious words. So, so far in the letter, some of the things that you may remember that James has emphasized so far, he's emphasized growing in maturity through enduring testing by trials of various kinds. He says that the trials that we experience of all kinds are for our good, because that's how God is moving us into Christ's likeness. He talks about rejecting the ways of the world by not showing partiality to the rich, by not showing partiality to other kinds of people and and making other people feel like they're not as important. And he's talked about showing the genuineness of our faith through works of mercy, like visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. Those are some of the the main themes that James has talked about so far as we get to, to chapter three. And now we're in the center of the letter. Everything has been building toward this He's been kind of seeding things out that are going to lead to chapter 3 and the things he talks about here, and then he's going to revisit them on the backside. And so he's going to fully dive in to some of those things, and we're going to fully dive in too. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter from James. We pray that your spirit would use it in our growth toward Christlikeness. May we become people who speak good and gracious words, who speak in accordance with the kingdom of God on earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so starting at verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So it's important to know why or who James is talking to and why he's saying this. So as I've said before, James is talking to leaders of Christians who have fled Jerusalem under persecution. They're zealous Jews. They're probably jealous too, but they're zealous Jews who have been uh, persecuting these Christians, chasing them out of the city, and then going and getting them and bringing them back to Jerusalem to be tortured and possibly executed. And James is writing to these persecuted Christians, and at times, he specifically writes to the leaders of these bands of Christians. And this section in chapter 3 is one of those times where he's specifically talking to the leaders. And he says that not many of them should become teachers because teachers are judged with greater strictness. Those who bear responsibility for other Christians aren't just held to a higher standard of conduct, but they're also more heavily scrutinized when they fail. When leaders fail, a lot of people tend to go down with them. And it's different than when a person in the congregation sins and when a leader sins because more people see it and the failure is more heavily recognized. And for the longest time, this verse here where he says, not many of you should become teachers. For the longest time, I really thought the verse was aimed specifically at pastors to make sure that they don't fall into error in their teaching, which, you know, makes sense. If pastors spread error in their teaching, then the congregation suffers because the the congregation is, is receiving that error and walking in it. 
And that's why pastors are trained in scripture, they're trained in theology, that's why they study, that's why they're accountable to other pastors and elders and leaders. And that's why Paul says to Timothy, keep a close watch over yourself and over the teaching. That's 1 Timothy 4.16. But that's not what James is getting at. He's not specifically talking about doctrinal error. And we'll see why shortly, but we'll continue verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So when James says that we stumble in many ways, he's acknowledging that we are not perfect. We make mistakes. There are a lot of things that we get wrong in life purely by accident, by uh, it's not what we intended, but we still make mistakes. Sometimes our good intentions end up having the opposite effect with people. And sometimes we get things wrong from the pulpit. Sometimes minor things like uh, referring to Paul when it's really Peter or the wrong book of the Bible, or sometimes just slip of the tongue saying something that's actually factually wrong and, and maybe quite serious. But if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is perfect. And if you remember from the beginning of the letter, perfect is the same word that we've been translating throughout as Christ-like maturity. And so we can read this as, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a mature person in Christ, able also to bridle his whole body. And this has two meanings. So the first meaning is that if a teacher is self-controlled in what he says, he will also be self-controlled in his physical body, what he does with his physical body, if he's self-controlled in what he says. Ungoverned words quickly spiral out of control into ungoverned actions of the body. And as I said in a previous sermon, when we begin talking irresponsibly, it's really hard to stop. Once that faucet gets turned on, it's really hard to shut it off. It's easier to just keep going. And when we're angry and our mouths are running, then the body starts thinking it's time to get ready for a fight, okay? But so ungoverned words often lead to ungoverned actions of the body. But if someone is self-controlled in what he says and not given to words to escalate situations, he will also be self-controlled in his body. So that's one meaning. The other meaning is this. If a teacher is self-controlled in what he says, he will also keep the body that he's in charge of, the body of Christ, the church, under control. He'll keep the body of Christ acting in Christ-like ways and not in the stained ways of the world. So remember I've said that in James's letter, it appears that some of the leaders who were under persecution were beginning to talk about fighting back and taking matters into their own hands and retaliating with violence. They wanted to trade violence for violence. And because they were leaders, they had a platform for speech. They could speak to the whole congregation. They had a platform for it. And it seems that they were using this platform for fiery rhetoric that was stirring people up into a frenzy so that they would take up arms and that they would fight back. And James is saying that not many of you should become teachers, not because of the possibility of doctrinal error, but because some were using this platform to promote violence. And James says, you can't do that. If you have a platform, you can't use it to stir the people up to suit your own agenda. 
James says it's not mature, Christ-like speech when you do that. And because teachers are judged more strictly, they'd better watch out. So it's a warning to those who would assume to be teachers. Verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body and setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. So a couple things here. So a bit is a piece of metal that goes into the horse's mouth and it allows the rider to control the horse where he wants the horse to go. A rudder, as you know, is a small piece uh, on the ship that allows the pilot to guide the ship where the pilot wants it to go. And in both cases, the bit and the rudder are just small pieces comparatively to the very large thing. They're just small pieces that a human pilot or rider uses to steer a great big thing where they want it to go. And likewise, in the human body, the tongue is a small member, but the effect that it can have is disproportionate to the rest of the body, for good or for evil. It can have a disproportionate effect for good or for evil compared to the rest of the body. It depends on the teacher and how the teacher wants to use the tongue. If the teacher wants to use the tongue recklessly, like some of these teachers were that James is writing to and directing people toward hatred and violence, then the body will move in that direction. The church will move in that direction. So you have a rider who uses the bit to control the horse. You have a pilot who uses the rudder to control the ship. And you have the teacher who uses his tongue to guide the church. Does that make sense? And to use a phrase from every Spider-Man movie that's ever been made, with great power comes great responsibility. If you're a teacher and you have a platform, you have great responsibility to use the power of the tongue wisely and well. Then James brings back three words from earlier in the letter. He had used three words earlier, tongue, world, and stain. And he brings those back in this section. So in, in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, he had written this. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And I think James isn't talking about speech in general, just the speech that we use every day, but I think he's talking about speech that is stained by the patterns of the world and the habits of the world. And retaliating against enemies is a worldly way of responding to enemies. Currying favor with the rich is a worldly way of responding. And using words to boast and to manipulate is a worldly way of responding. And he's warning them, don't use your tongue, don't use your platform to manipulate, to curry favor, to use it to your advantage to get what you want and to direct people in the direction that you want. Verse 7. 
For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now there's an echo of the creation story in that passage. I don't know if you detected it, but there's an echo of Genesis 1 and 2 here. So in Genesis 1, God tells mankind to fill the earth and to subdue it and to have dominion over every living thing on the earth. And in Genesis 2, God brings every kind of animal to Adam, and Adam gives each one a name. And naming the animals is a way of exercising dominion over them. So in Genesis 2.19, it says, And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And so Adam looked at a horse and said, Horse. And God said, okay, that's a horse. You call it a horse, that's a horse. Adam spoke reality into being. And just as God said, let there be light and there was light, Adam spoke reality into being in naming the animals. And God gives us the power to create reality through our words. That's part of being made in the image of God, is this gift of being able to bring things into being by our words. So think about marital vows. Something is created when you make marital vows. Think about testimony under oath. God gives us the power to affirm reality through our words, to say what really is. And so when we gather in worship and we declare and, we declare and affirm what is real, we testify to the world that Jesus is King, that he has been raised, that he's ascended, and that he's seated at the right hand of the Father and that we're his body, the church. We affirm that reality when we gather in worship. And when we affirm the reality of the kingdom of God, particularly through our worship, we create something new in the world, something that didn't exist before through our testimony. And James says, that's not the problem. The problem is that too often we use our tongues to speak in worldly ways. And that speaks hell into reality. Instead of speaking the kingdom of God into reality, it speaks hell into reality. James says, with our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So Adam said, horse, and God said, okay, that's a horse. If somebody intentionally harms us and we say, you fool, God says, what do you think you're doing calling somebody that's made in my image a fool? That is not a proper naming of somebody else. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that it's not enough to just not murder somebody. Instead, he says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And so when James writes, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell, I think he's reminding his audience of Jesus' teaching about where those words come from.
Because saying, you fool, is speech that comes from hell. It doesn't come from the kingdom of God. Speech from the kingdom of God blesses enemies and prays for those who persecute us. But if you speak hell's language, then hell makes a claim on you. Does that make sense? For a few years, my my mother-in-law and her husband, who's since passed away, uh, they had a camper. And every now and then they go to state parks, they take the camper. And they had a little sign uh, that said, I'm sorry for what I said while you were trying to park the camper. You think about those kind of words that get said in those kind of situations. I know that Patrick has said there have been times at the marina where he's intervened in a husband and wife couple where one's trying to put the boat on the trailer and it's not going well. And he's, he's kind of intervened to help so that things don't get worse. It's very easy for things to spiral out of control. But I think it might help us to remember where such words come from. So if we take everything that James has said so far, it sounds like he's absolutely convinced that human beings have no ability to tame their tongue whatsoever, and that we're just stuck with this hellish fire in our mouths, ready at any moment to just spew poisonous words out. That's what it sounds like. But James has said some things previously in the letter that I think it's important for us to keep in mind. He said, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And he said, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So James grants that it is possible for us to bridle our tongues. We can control what we say. We can keep our tongues under control. And while we should be slow to speak, we can speak. We are allowed to speak. And James has also echoed the book of Proverbs in a couple of places, which consistently teaches that our speech can go in two directions. You read the book of Proverbs, and there are good ways of speaking, and there are bad ways of speaking. So Proverbs 12, 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. That's a vivid picture. There's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. The tongue of the wise brings healing. Or Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. So it is possible to speak good and gracious and life-giving words that accord with the kingdom of God. And that's why James wants us to take seriously the potential of our words. How many of us honestly and regularly think to ourselves, I will be judged one day for what I am about to say in this moment? How many of us ever think that before we say something? I am one day going to be judged for what I am about to say in this moment, and then not say that thing. James wants these teachers and us to recognize the power of the tongue and use it for blessing and not cursing enemies. Remember the Lord's own example in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We don't need to be scared of the power of the tongue, but we do need to discipline our speech. Two weeks ago, I said that our works matter, and they do. But our words matter too. The words that we say matter too. And if we're going to grow in Christ-like maturity, that growth will have to be reflected 
in the words that we choose to use. So for the application, I want to consider three ways to train our tongue to speak righteous words. The first one is regular participation in corporate worship, the very thing that we're doing tonight. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We gather to praise God because he's worthy and he's glorious, but our praise also trains our tongues to speak righteously. So when we sing songs of praise, we're trained to confess God's glory with our lips. When we confess our sins together, which we sometimes do, we're trained to be humble and to not let pride get a hold over us. When we recite the historic creeds of the church, like we're going to do in a little bit, we train our tongues to speak words that are good and true and beautiful. These are ways that our tongues are trained in righteousness, and God works to mature us by the Spirit, the corporate worship that we have together. Number two is singing, speaking, and praying the Psalms. We talk about the Psalms a lot, and for good reason. The Psalms are given to us by God to teach his children how to speak the language of righteousness and peace. You know, we can study the Psalms and we can learn a lot from them, and it's good to do that. But the Psalms are meant to be sung and they're meant to be prayed. And singing and praying Psalms trains our tongues and speaks reality into being. This is why David could say in Psalm 6, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. In other words, David says, You workers of evil need to get away from me because I have cried out to Yahweh and he's heard and he's accepted my prayer and help is on the way. And as we sing and pray the words of the Psalms, we will grow into the image of God. We'll be made mature and learn to reign with him. Amen. Number three, praying for our friends, praying for God's enemies, and praying for the world. We pray because we believe that God hears our prayers and causes things to happen in the world. But our prayers also change us personally. We are changed when we pray. When we pray the Psalms, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, or prayers that come from the heart. We train our tongues to speak words of blessing and mercy. God doesn't just change the world through our prayers, but he also changes our own tongues. He changes our patterns of speech. If you pray consistently for somebody who makes life hard for you, you'll be more likely to speak good and gracious words to that person when you're with them. And Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So that's a real cornucopia of prayers. He talks about supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all kinds of people. There are different ways that we can pray for all kinds of different people. 
And Paul says to pray for kings and for those who are in high positions. And for us, that would be our leaders, probably our elected leaders. And our leader, I don't know if you know this, but our leaders are not always popular with us. We are not always big fans of those who are in office. But if you and I were to pray consistently and earnestly for our leaders, whatever party they belong to, to pray for their health, to pray for their families, to pray for wisdom, to pray for the decisions that they have to make, don't you think that would have an effect on how you then speak about those leaders to other people? I think it would have an effect, a positive effect. And that brings us all the way back to the beginning of the sermon. We want to speak good, gracious, and true words that are fitting for the citizens of the kingdom of God to speak. And we, as we bridle our tongues to speak this way, we will be made mature, never stumbling in what we say. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. And we are going to...